parents have likely heard about sensory processing issues or sensory processing disorder. But what does that mean? And how do you know if your child may experience these issues? Today, we'll get some answers from an occupational therapist at Encompass, and we'll hear from Jen and Kate, two mothers who had concerns about their kids. Our biggest issue within the family was the amount of tantrums he was having. He would, would scream hysterically and nonstop. I was the only person that could hold him, and me holding him never stopped him screaming. You would think, well, he's starving. And so you would try to feed him, but he was screaming so much, it would take him 10 minutes to even notice the food was there and be able to stop screaming to eat. And then he would fall asleep eating. And so then I used to think, okay, he's furious to be awake. I could think of no other way to make sense of this. So it seemed to me, okay, he just wants to sleep. And whenever he's awake, he's hysterical. And that was our life. And then he became that child that just had very strong reactions, would be unpredictable. Uh, I could not guess when it would happen, why it would happen, but there it would be. And it would last anywhere from 40 minutes to past an hour. And it would happen three to four times a day. And I personally started to wonder if he was on the spectrum. So then I took him in to be evaluated for the tantrums. And what the OT really picked up on and noticed he was really needed help with was where his body relates in space. And she pointed out and asked me, does he have balance issues? Does he fall? And I'm like, oh yeah. But for us, that wasn't the most noticeable piece about him. It was just his personality. It was who he was. My husband used to relate it to, he's like Kramer, like his body moved like Kramer and he fell over chairs and he fell off chairs. He fell out the car. He fell off of curbs. And that's who we thought he just was. And it's funny, that's the piece that was his sensory issue. And because he was using so much of his energy and patience and everything within him to kind of find where his body was in space, he did not have any energy left over to regulate his emotions. So then how did you figure out? So we were never concerned about my youngest being on the, the spectrum because she was so outgoing and friendly and we call her the mayor. She loves to talk to everybody and, and say hi to everybody. But we described it almost as baby ADHD. She was just frantic in her play and wouldn't play with any toys for more than five minutes. And five minutes is pushing it. I think when she went in for her initial evaluation, she was timed for being on a task for like 30 or 45 seconds wow. before moving to something else. Uh, much like your kid, she was also very clumsy. She would run looking backwards. I've seen her flat out run into walls yes, because she absolutely. doesn't watch where she's going. She would fall off of everything, chairs and stools. And we didn't really even think or know about sensory processing issues until we went in for her three-year checkup with her doctor who actually suggested that she may have sensory processing issues. She said that it's not widely necessarily known about or accepted in the medical community and recommended this book to us called The Out of Sync Child. It's dense, but I, I read through it and, and so much in that book just really clicked and was my daughter. And so at that point, we brought her in for evaluation. And the therapist said, oh, yeah, she, she's got sensory issues. And so many of the things they said clicked. 
she was constantly seeking input from her environment, be it running and pushing off of things and jumping, even when she's supposed to be doing something like sitting and coloring with crayons. Got to the point where it was a challenge to take, a, take her with us to the grocery store. Absolutely. It was just not something we could do. She couldn't sit in the cart and behave while we were in the grocery store. She would be constantly trying to grab at things in the back of the cart or open bags that we hadn't purchased yet. Things, things like that that, you know, in the household it's, it's manageable, but yes. when you start going out in the public, it becomes very socially unaccepted. So what you're saying, then I imagine you felt what I was starting to feel, which was like an intense anxiety. I noticed that on our whole family, it was an absolute stress before we even left the, the house because yeah. what was guaranteed is there was going to be an issue. It became really isolating, you yeah. know? It felt like I couldn't take her to, to events or to get around town and run errands. The other aspect of it that I found really surprising was, was our, our family. I started talking to my mom about it and she was really resistant, which shocked me because she's such a supportive mother. But she, she was like, no, she's just a normal child. She's just really energetic. And it, it took a lot of teaching. I actually bought her the same book so that she could really understand. Mm -hmm. um, and now she's been to some of her therapy sessions and she's really on board and supportive oh, wow. and gets her all of these extra toys. Uh, textured Play-Dohs and clays and weighted blankets and all of this stuff to help her. But there was a shocking amount of resistance at first. My family was perfectly fine with it. They all thought, okay, that's wonderful, you're getting help. It's my husband that doesn't wasn't really raised to believe in stuff like this. Yeah. So to even get him evaluated was kind of quite a stretch. And then um, to get him to agree and say, okay, he does have this was a stretch. The biggest relief once our son was diagnosed and started getting treatment is that my husband was able to um, approach him from a place of compassion and I was able to switch and approach him from a place of compassion. I had tremendous patience for him up until he was about three and a half because because he screamed so much, no one would really hold him, including my husband. So I always felt like I had to love this child no matter what. So I would just put up with a lot and just keep chugging through. But it really was wearing on his siblings and my husband. And by the time he was five, me. Every day was so hard. And being able to switch to, okay, this is what he's struggling with. This is something that he needs to get help on, and we are getting the tools to help him. That, that was the most helpful piece. The second most helpful piece when we were getting help is that when you sit in the sessions, it's, it's like parenting classes. Kind of, yeah. Where you can learn how to help this child that has these specific challenges. So that was the other piece to it, that now I could go home, I had an action plan, I knew what I needed to do, I knew what would bother him, and I knew things to try to help him manage what was challenging for him. My husband is a really fantastic father, and he always was very patient, and I think their energy levels are, are very similar. And so he was, uh, I think, connected with her a little easier than I did, because I didn't understand what was going on with her. And once we got into therapy and got her evaluated, we both got the full picture and were able to come together a little more easily yes. and do what she needed to get her through a day. And I remember going in for her initial evaluation just absolutely almost panicked about 
her going into kindergarten eventually, and how is she even going to be able to sit in a in a classroom? She, at that point, she would not have been able to. But now she's in a special education preschool as well. The growth since she's been in there, I can see her going into kindergarten and being able to be a successful student. And her, her energy level is more controlled because she's not having to constantly seek it from her environment. Okay. We have a special shirt for her. It's a compression shirt. I never would have thought of something like this. Therapists are fantastic. They suggested it. And she wears it to school, and that compression shirt is enough stimulation to calm her that she can sit in the classroom and participate. And it just gives me so much more hope for her abilities as a student going forward. We're joined today by Ashley Fletcher, an occupational therapist with Encompass. Ashley has lots of experience working with young children. I've heard a lot of parents talking about sensory processing issues. So first, can you tell us what sensory processing means? Sensory processing refers to the way in which the nervous system responds to sensory input. So we have our five senses that we always talk about, taste, touch, sight, hearing, and smell. But we actually have three more senses. Our vestibular and proprioceptive sense provide information about where our body is and what it's doing. We also have interoception, which is kind of like our body's internal sense or thermostat. It says if we're too hot, too cold, thirsty, hungry. So when we think about processing and sensory processing, it's how is our nervous system responding to these eight senses? And how are our bodies generating a response to that input? So is it accurate to say that sensory processing disorder means that someone's sensory processing isn't functioning as it should or as we'd expect it to? So I should first say that sensory processing disorder isn't included in the diagnostic manuals that physicians or psychologists use. It's a pretty big controversy and it's really confusing because a lot of times we talk about sensory processing disorder but then we're later told it doesn't exist. But from occupational therapist standpoint, what we really care about is how do sensory processing issues affect a person's ability to function in everyday life. So you're right, when we think about sensory processing disorder, really we're thinking about the issues that someone may have in their life because of challenges they face with processing sensory input. So this makes sense when I think about the five commonly known senses that you already mentioned. Can you give us some examples of how this applies to the other senses that are more relating to movement? So our movement senses are housed um, in our ears, and that's our vestibular sense, which when people get vertigo, which we all know about, that's when our vestibular sense is acting up. Our vestibular sense tells us where our head is in space. So if you close your eyes and move your head, your vestibular sense will tell you which way your head is moving and where it's at. If you've ever had vertigo before, you lose where your head is, and then you become really dizzy and oftentimes sick. Our proprioceptive sense is housed in our joints. Gravity acts on our joints all the time to give us information about where our body is in space. We also get information by moving our joints. So as we move our body and our joints open and close, it compresses the sensory receivers, which then sends a signal to our brain about where your arm is, where your leg is, where your toes are relative to your ankle. When we have an under-responsive or over-responsive movement senses, we've lost our body. Kids feel very, and adults that have that challenge, feel very disconnected from their bodies. I'll even have kids draw pictures of themselves sometimes, and I'll say, draw me a picture of yourself 
and their head will be floating in the sky or their hands will be completely disconnected from their arms. And it's not necessarily a fine motor issue, but more of they actually perceive their body to be that disconnected. So can you give a specific example of an under-response and then an over-response? Sure. So a child that has an under-responsive movement sense may seek out additional sensory input. So those are the kids that have lost their body, so they are now dragging along the walls, trying to use the wall to ground themselves. Kind of like a boundary or something? Kind of. By seeking that extra input or that extra pressure from the wall, it sends a stronger signal to their brain about where they are. They also may be the kids that sort of drape themselves over you. They may also be the kids in class or the adults that sit next to you in a meeting that are constantly shifting in their chair, just trying to get extra input about where they're located. On the flip side, and a child that's over-responsive, they may have some more nervousness about accessing playground equipment. They may feel a little more hesitant to go down a slide because they perceive it more intensely. They may overall just be a little bit hesitant when it comes to riding their bike. They may want to stay on their balance bike where their feet are solidly attached to the ground versus transitioning to a two-wheeled bike. Some other examples that aren't related to movement but are things we commonly hear parents come in and seek support for are kids that may over-respond to auditory input. So these are kids that are truly startled and put in to fight or flight when you start the vacuum without giving them warning. They're also the kids that maybe don't hear when the bell rings at school because they're under-responding. And so people are often saying, well, they're not listening or they're not paying attention, but it's really they truly just didn't register that the bell had rung and they required additional environmental cues like their friends getting up to leave or looking at their visual schedule in their classroom to see what was next to support the fact that they missed that information via their auditory system. I also have parents come in a lot describing challenges their kids are having wearing clothing so their tactile sense is over responsive. So a sock being slightly out of alignment just ruins a day. Like tags on clothes. Tags on clothes, yeah, absolutely. One. I think that this is getting a lot more attention in just sort of our mainstream media lately, and that's in turn generated a consumer response because we now no longer have to order specialized clothing for kids. There's actually a great section at Target for this. Target has made a lot of sensory-friendly materials and just made them very easy for everyone to access at a moderate price point. I'm seeing a lot of kids' clothing, actually adult clothing these days too, that are tagless. I mean, the right. information is just like printed in there. The problem with that is it seems like it washes out eventually and then you no longer know what size you've yeah. got or what the fabric is made of anymore. But yes. anyway, that said, um, I've just noticed that. A lot more recently. Absolutely. Also, um, there are kids that will have over-responsive, and adults, or under-responsive taste senses. So some people want to eat the spiciest pepper that they can access, and other people can't have even a small speck of black pepper. So circling kind of back to this idea of sensory, sensory processing disorder or sensory processing issues, we all do have those differences. We all over and under-respond to each of our eight 
sensory systems very differently than the person sitting next to you. But what we really focus on is when does this become an issue that impacts a child's ability to function in their daily life. So I might not necessarily uh, work with a child who just doesn't like their tags in clothes because they can go and purchase a shirt without tags and problem solved. But when we have issues that are sort of compounding or maybe parents just need a little extra support brainstorming and it's really affecting a child's life, that's oftentimes when we consider it more of an issue with sensory processing versus just a difference. So what would you say in your experience are the main misconceptions about sensory processing issues? So I think there's two main misconceptions that I encounter a lot. The first, which I've made myself in this talk so far, is that sensory processing challenges are limited to children, and that's just not true. We have many adults that have a very hard time functioning every day because of discomfort they feel because of their sensory systems over-responding or under-responding to sensory input. We also all have our own unique sensory preferences that we can often accommodate, but sometimes we can't. So this is not just limited to children, it certainly affects people of all ages. There's also a misconception that people are either blanket over-responders or under-responders. When actually you over-respond or under-respond or respond just right, to each of your eight sensory systems uniquely. So in other words, maybe somebody could be over-responsive to maybe bright lights, but maybe under-responsive to sounds? Exactly, exactly, that's a great example. I'll oftentimes have families that describe a child that's over-responsive to um, taste and is maybe a little bit more of a picky eater, but under-responsive to movement, so they're getting them to sit at the dinner table can be quite a challenge. <laughs> so what treatments are available these days for sensory processing issues and how do parents know if they should seek help? I think parents should seek help whenever they're feeling like their child's sensory processing issues or potential sensory processing issues are impacting their child's ability to engage in activities that we would consider age appropriate. So if your child is restricting their activities or getting them to do things that we would consider pretty typical for their age is resulting in big tantrums or large disruption for your family, that would definitely be time to seek support. In terms of how we address sensory processing issues, there are quite a few different strategies. I would say first and foremost, I focus on educating parents so that they can support their children. I'm with your child one hour a week and you're with them the rest of the time. So. If I am not able to give you strategies to use at home, then I'm not really doing my job. So first, we partner with parents and try to empower parents to problem solve and come up with a plan that they can implement at home that works for their family. Another strategy we use is cognitive behavioral strategies. So we want kids to, to develop the skills to decide if their response is too much or too little and if their behavior is appropriate for the situation that they're in. Ultimately, we want to teach kids to self-regulate. And what we mean by that is that they can take whatever situation they're in and generate a response that's fairly appropriate for the setting. They're still kids, and we all still do things that others might consider to not be quite socially appropriate. But ultimately, we want to empower kids to make those decisions for themselves and to have control over those situations versus feeling out of control or relying on their parents to regulate for them all the time. 
We also try to provide opportunities for kids to experience sensory input in a controlled manner. By giving kids sensory experiences in a lower stakes clinic environment, they're able to generate new pathways that more appropriately respond to the input. Doing this in a clinic or home setting is much less threatening than having this exposure or experience happen in a public or social setting that may already be stressful. So having kids practice smelling things in the clinic is a little bit different than being bombarded by the smell of the grocery store when you're trying to get through your shopping list and your child is trying to have you look at everything in the store and put it in your cart and then something smelled and it's too much. We also collaborate with parents to develop a sensory diet and this can include things like movement activities, weighted lap pads, noise blocking headphones, chew necklaces, and some of those other clothing ideas that we talked about. Well, thank you Ashley Fletcher for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Today we've heard some valuable information from parents as well as an experienced occupational therapist. For additional resources, please visit our website, www.encompassnw.org.